Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we're joined by Melissa Sanchez. Melissa is a bilingual reporter for ProPublica, which does investigative journalism in the public interest. Melissa is based in Chicago and covers labor and immigration. She just won a Studs Terkel Award for her work, which is an important award to Chicago journalists. Her stories are deep investigative pieces that are read by people who can enact change. She's of Mexican descent, a graduate of Michigan State, who has also worked for several other outlets, including the Miami Herald, Nuevo Herald. Melissa, thank you for joining me. Hey, thank you for having me. So what's your journalism origin story? It's, it's, it's a bit of a long story. So I am from Metro Detroit. I grew up in a Detroit suburb. And I think early on in school, I thought I was a good writer or that I liked writing kind of in the more traditional, like creative writing sense. And I was really lucky to attend a public school system that had student newspapers throughout like middle school and high school. And so I, you know, I, I, I worked on those. And again, it was more like in a writerly kind of way, not that I was particularly good in retrospect, but my, um, my, I, I got, I got, had a lot of breaks and I was encouraged by a lot of people at a young age. My dad, who's an immigrant from Mexico and doesn't, doesn't always have like a good understanding of the rules or how things are supposed to work encouraged me in high school to go get a job at the local newspaper and I was like dad I'm like 16 or 17 and I didn't think that that was realistic but I felt obligated to try because he told me to and he was my father so I went to the local paper the South Lion Herald and I asked for a job and the editor a very sweet older man was a little amused and surprised and said that he couldn't give me a job but that I could be a quasi intern or write stories for them And so I did a little bit of that in high school. I think that was my senior year. And that was, you know, a story about snowboarding, a story about a band that played like things that a, you know, a teenage girl would like. And and kind of simultaneously, I was at the high school newspaper where there was, you know, typical high school hijinks that happened that I got interested in and covered and and through that I got I my journalism advisor or newspaper advisor told me about some like local competition for high school journalists in Detroit that I took part in and I don't actually remember the outcome I think I might have gotten second place or was a finalist I know I didn't win but but being part of that put me on the radar of a recruiter for the Detroit Free Press a guy named Joe Grimm who became a really important like mentor for me early on and he helped me get into an apprenticeship program it's like a pre-internship program at the free press and I did that the summer after I graduated from high school and I returned to the free press as a intern slash editorial aide like making copies running errands for folks writing obituaries the summer after my my freshman year at college so you know initially a lot of it was I thought I wanted to be a writer. I was was a good writer. And then I, I met people who encouraged me to do writing in a professional sort of way and gave me opportunities and eventually scholarships and, and, you know, internship opportunities and Michigan state, you know, that school, I, I only applied to one school. I had really good grades, but 
I understood that it had a journalism program. No, 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 nobody in my family had ever gone to college, but I knew somebody who had gone there and was studying journalism. And she said, you should come here too. And so I applied, got in, and then that school has a really strong student newspaper. So that was, that was a big part of it too. We actually just saluted the Daily Spartan in a recent episode with another college student, Rebecca Johnson. Now your upbringing, you mentioned your father before, and you write a lot, as we said, about immigration and labor now. Can you explain your father's relationship to that? Yeah. So both of my parents are immigrants. Like my dad's from Mexico and mom's from Salvador. And I was born and raised in the U.S. in, in, in Detroit and its suburbs. I, I mean, I think being the product of immigrants has really shaped my identity as like a person and as a reporter and my interests and kind of what I see like just like the stories I see in the world and don't always see in media. And as a kid, or as like, you know, a young person saw missing in, in media coverage. My dad came when he was young from, from a part of Mexico called Guanajuato. He immigrated here illegally, like so many people do from, did in that time. This must've been in late sixties, early seventies. I can't even remember now, but you know, so he, 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 he migrated here and his experience as an immigrant and eventually, you know, he got papers, but it's really affected the way I see myself. I grew up in a pretty white suburb of Chicago, or sorry, of Detroit. And um, I was the only Latino kid in my class. I was sort of, I became very ashamed of my background because I wasn't like the rest of the kids, ashamed of parents who speak only Spanish. My dad was a truck driver. So I, I kind of felt like it was a less than type of job than some of the, the jobs that my, my friend's parents had. And so a, a lot of that kind of fed into this like idea, this like lack of self-worth when I was younger, to, to be honest. But as I, as I grew older and went to college and was and became aware of other people like me, other kids of immigrants who are in similar situations from different parts of the state. I, I sort of like found my people and also um, like really, I, I don't know, found a, a focus that I haven't abandoned in, in, in my work. And my, my dad, like, you know, he's, he's a, he's a, I'm a parent now too. So I, I'm, I'm finding myself behaving in ways that he, that he did when I was younger, but he always, treated us like adults even when we were young like really mature people like we I, I call him by his first name I don't say papa I don't say dad and and I I think he's always just treated us like what like 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 individuals with the capacity to like have real conversations about real things and um that's I think that's affected the way that I that I approach things and then he in I don't know, even that, even that, that experience I shared about like in, him encouraging me to go, go get a job at the newspaper, like was, was part of that. And and I, I think I want to say too, like my parents as immigrants, like they, a lot of their relatives have, have situations where the, the man is the one who works and the woman stays home and has kids. And I think even though my, my parents and my dad might have treated me with a lot of maturity he didn't have a, a lot of high expectations for me I think he thought I would get married and get pregnant and have kids and that would have been that would have been great and so I think I've kind of surprised both of them and my dad especially by with with the career that I've wound up having and he's become a really strong cheerleader and and mentor and and I don't know an advisor for a lot of this 
stories that I do even to this day. I'm looking at your career path, Michigan State 2007, uh, then a year in Nicaragua, time with a newspaper in Yakima, Washington. I mentioned the Miami Herald, Catalyst Chicago, which is ed education reporting for four years, and then ProPublica since 2017. Can you summarize maybe a couple of the highlights of your uh, career path? Yeah, I think the, so after college, I, I want a grant to go spend a year in, in any Spanish speaking country in Latin America. And I chose Nicaragua at the time. I'm not Nicaraguan, but at the moment, it was the poorest Spanish-speaking country in the hemisphere. And I wanted to be in a place where I could kind of understand like the poverty that my parents left. And it was a really formative experience. It was really difficult. It was hard. I learned a lot about being like independent and having to produce stories without a boss. And I learned that I wasn't very good at it. I do like structure. But um, just for years to come, and even like now to this day, I kind of go back to to what I learned there, and it it just it it applies a lot. So I I really I'm just grateful for that opportunity to have spent time in another country doing reporting, even if, it, if I didn't like walk away with like a book or like some big investigative stories. It was a series of random stories, a lot of domestic like in 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 country reporting, like for in country publications. But it it's it was. It was an amazing year, and I would just really encourage young people to take time away from the U.S. if possible. So let's hone in on what you're doing now for ProPublica and what you've done recently for them. One story in particular, this ran in February, Death on a Dairy Farm. It is the story of the accidental death of a young boy and a series of problematic circumstances that led to the official record of what happened being that he was accidentally run over by his father except that according to both his father and the person actually driving the vehicle, the driver in the accidental killing was someone else. It's a story about people, but it's also about flaws in the way occupational health is managed at the federal level, how local police are lacking in Spanish speakers, and how undocumented labor are taken advantage of. That's a lot. Did I leave anything out? Probably, that story was about everything. Yeah, it really was. So how did this, to get to it, how did the story end up with you and your fellow reporter, Mariam Jamil? Yeah, a, a couple of years ago, I had gotten back to work at ProPublica after a maternity leave for my second kid. And I was trying to figure out, what am I going to do? It's like every time you start, it feels like starting over and like, how do you, how do I do my job? And I wound up on the phone with a paralegal in Michigan who did work with immigrants. And she happened to tell me about some dairy workers who'd been killed in a fatal fire and employer provided housing in like rural Michigan. And I was so fascinated because I knew nothing about dairy. I knew nothing about employer provided housing or the, you know, how unregulated a lot of, a lot of aspects of this industry are. And I, I wanted to write a story about these two deaths and I haven't written that story yet because I got swept up by a lot of other different reporting the un unrelated and I finally returned to this at some point early last year and was trying to understand the scope I was really encouraged by my editors to, to figure out what is the scope of harm like how how where are the accidents happening who's getting hurt how has that harm changed over time and by the industry and in geography and I was trying to amass all the deaths and injuries that I could find in Wisconsin, because that's the state that was nearby where the most deaths and injuries were happening. And in the course of doing that, I was filing records requests with 
law enforcement agencies across Wisconsin about accidents that I became aware of through different media reports. And I hadn't gone to visit the state yet. I have two little kids and it was hard to go for long stretches of time to do reporting, but I'm accumulating records. I have boxes of records behind me. And one of those was the death of this child. And it was, it was, it was incredible. The, 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 the report on his death was written by this deputy, Angolia, who had a really like, she, she's a writer. She has a way of describing a storyteller. And she described this awful scene of this man who was absolutely hysterical and trying to dig a hole in the ground after his son died. And it was, it was one of those reports that really sticks with you. And I, and I thought at that moment, like, if I can, if I can find this guy, I can do a story about this man who accidentally killed his kid and like the, the guilt and the horrible, the, the horror he must still feel today. And I, I ended up in Madison one day and I looked for this guy and I ended up getting connected to him through somebody else. And that's when I discovered that, that it was an entirely different set of facts that this man and his community understood had happened. So I, I didn't expect the story would be what it was, but it took it took months to, to nail all those pieces down. But it was sort of accidental finding that story. I thought I was going to do something else. So, all right. So somewhat unusual. What are some of the steps that you went through in the reporting process? So we talked to a lot of people, maybe at least a hundred people for that story. We didn't talk to the father of the boy. We didn't talk to the key characters until the very end because they didn't want to talk or we couldn't find them or I was nervous about reaching out quite yet. But we we tried to track down people who were there that night, people who were there in the weeks to come, people who visited the farm, people who knew the family. So it was a lot of interviews. We talked to at least a dozen interpreters, police, you know, officials of different ranks, folks who understood the system, like in, in social, you know, services. We filed so many records requests. Like I said, initially it was kind of this broader set of requests around accidents and incidents on, on dairy farms. And in the course of doing that, like I had initially been trying to find accidents, injuries and deaths, you know, like the worst case scenario. But in the process, I got back a lot of reports about other things that were that were maybe less severe, but that would include mentions of workers on farms who couldn't communicate with the law enforcement officers because of language barriers. So, so all of those records, and there were hundreds of records, became part of that reporting. That might have only been a line in the story. And then eventually, like in December, we finally met the boy's father and had like an interview. And we we'd had a lot of court records that had included his his testimony. So we already had his version of events. But we finally had it like ourselves and, 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 and we, we connected with him. And the and like the most exciting parts of the reporting, to be honest, were at the end when we found the man who had accidentally run over his child and he'd left the state and was super hesitant about talking because he's an undocumented immigrant and because he was afraid of getting in trouble and he was afraid of his family finding out and he had never told his parents what had happened. And we were able to track him down and then the and the deputy who misunderstood the father. She she thought she spoke good enough Spanish to interview him. And in the course of our conversation, I discovered that she did not speak well good enough Spanish and was able to explain to her what the Spanish she thought she said meant. That it it was <laughs> she 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 was she just got it wrong and nobody had 
had the capacity linguistically to tell her that, to catch her on that. So it was it was a lot of a lot of reporting, a lot of interviews, and a lot of time like meeting people and trying to convince them to talk to us. What was her reaction to you explaining to her that because essentially there you're kind of becoming part of this by telling her that she got it wrong? Yeah, it was she was a really great person to talk to because she was like soft and slow and thoughtful. And, you know, she, she said, you know, I, I asked him, did you do this? And I'm like, what, what are, can you tell me the words that you used in Spanish? And originally I had wanted to test her to see, to call her in Spanish and see does she really speak Spanish, but that felt kind of like sneaky and like, Gotcha. You know, it was, you know, it wasn't honest and, and it was, she was, she was like a decent person who like called me back. Right. So I'm like, let's, so I asked her and then she said the words and they didn't make any sense. And, and so I, I told her like, actually what you said means this. And her reaction was like, I did the best that I could. And I'm like, Anne, is it possible that you got it wrong? And she's like, it's possible that I didn't ask the question the way that, you know, that, that I thought like she, she didn't, she like acknowledged it kind of, she didn't apologize, but she said like, she did the best that she could, and she thought that it made sense. Once, once she knew, once, once she realized what had happened, it, it felt like all of the pieces fell into place, like for both of us. And there was no, it wasn't a hard, it wasn't a hard interview. And I, I went back over it many times, like, are you sure? <laughs> I really want to include this in the story. And I called her back, you know, once we were closer to publication, and I read her basically everything that had her name on it, and I told her what the story said, and. And she was afraid at first that I was going to make her out to look, you know, evil or like a villain. I forget the language she used, but she was a little bit nervous. But I, but what I read to her was true. And I, you know, it's, it was difficult to listen to, but she didn't say that it was wrong. What other obstacles did you run into as you did this? And are there any things that are instructive for younger journalists in terms of how you overcame them? I mean, it, it's... Doing this work is, it's helpful to speak the language. I honestly don't know how you would if you didn't. I mean, I, I don't know if an English, if somebody who didn't speak really good Spanish would have been able to understand that she had gotten it wrong. So I advocated early on. I knew early on that this, all the reporting, not just this story, but like all of the, we want to do more reporting on dairy. It was, it was a lot for me. It was, it, it was kind of overwhelming. And I knew that I wanted to work with somebody else and I wanted to work with somebody else who spoke real Spanish. And that's like a hard thing to ask for, but I asked for, and I, I wanted to work with Mariam who works out of her DC office early on because I knew she was like me, the child of immigrants from, from in Salvador and from Pakistan. And she speaks beautiful Spanish and she really cares about labor. And so so it was, a, it was a, it wasn't, it, it took a while to get her on board and to make the editors understand why it was so important to work with somebody who could easily do both the interviews with workers on the ground, as well as the public records requests or speaking with like, you know, English speaking officials. So I think that, and, you know, one thing I, I spoke to a class recently at Northwestern and somebody asked about using an how to conduct interviews or help help with interviews when you don't always speak the language very well? How do you make sure you're getting it right? And I think just the, the thing I, I told them is, and, and because this, this student was relying on another student who was bilingual and Latino to help with the, the checking of her Spanish. And I, I think I would just say like, it's, it's really important to be able to connect with people where they are and language is a huge part of it. I think because of my 
identity, because of my cultural background, because my parents are immigrants, because I grew up speaking Spanish, all of those things really give me a way into people's lives and it builds trust. And so like, I think just reporters who don't have that and want to write about these communities need to be really conscious of what that means. And if you do ask for the help of somebody else, of a colleague who, who speaks Spanish, who's a, who's a you know, a, a Hispanic person, like know that that's asking a lot and give people credit, not just a little tagline at the bottom, but we end up making like personal connections with people that are really meaningful. And it's, we're not just like interpreters who are just kind of standing in the background. So it's just hard, but if you can, if you do, if you do do this, like, I think it's possible, but just be really conscious of limitations. And if you ask for help, like give people the credit that they deserve. What is the experience of actually doing the writing, especially for stories like this that are intense and that I imagine to you in, in some ways are probably personal. What is the experience of actually writing it like for you? It, it wasn't, it wasn't that hard of a story to write. I had the, the top of it written like months earlier before I actually knew what happened. It's, I got a lot of help. I have a really strong editor, his name's Steve Mills, and he'd written a lot about failures in the criminal justice system. So he had seen early on the possibility of making it a narrative with kind of more suspense. And so what really helped, I think, us was we wrote a lot as we went along. And I've learned to do that over the past few years. So the editors, so I don't sit down at the end of all the reporting and try to write this thing that's, that's really overwhelming and difficult. I'm trying to write, I'm trying to have some discipline and it's not perfect, but at least every month or so there's like a new draft even and, you know, trying to fill in holes as we go. So that makes the actual process like go by really quickly and smoothly. So I also read out loud to myself. My husband sometimes, we work in the same office now at home. He sometimes comments like, you're talking to yourself again. <laughs> but I, I think reading, you know, for, for the ear helps to, to make the writing cleaner. Sure. So one of the things that I often tell my colleagues is that you can't presume that just because you put something online that people will see it. Sometimes you have to bring the news to them. And with this series of stories that you're working on, this one in particular, ProPublica did that. Um, explain what you did and how did it work? I'm so happy you asked. So we knew early on that people were not going to be visiting ProPublica.org to look for our story, not like undocumented Nicaraguan immigrants who live in rural Wisconsin, who have limited access to the internet, who have first grade educations and low literacy rates. And so very early on, we talked about a couple of things. One was like, we wanted to, we, we knew we were going to translate the story. We, that was, there was no question about that. The, uh, some editors thought because, because we know that immigrants have low literacy rates, should we do a truncated version of the story, a shorter kind of bullets? Like here's, here's what you need to know. And we were adamant, Mariam and I, that we needed to write the full story in both languages, that it was, it was a story like a, like a tale that needed to be told and not, and not a set of facts. And we wanted to give people the dignity of the entire story. So, so we convinced them we need to do the whole story, even though it's 7,500 words and probably more in Spanish. We knew that people couldn't read it. Like I, I learned a few years ago from, a, I realized a few years ago from a different story that I wrote this long, beautiful story. We had it translated into Spanish and the people who I was writing about, didn't have the capacity to read it. So I wound up recording myself in my closet, reading it into a microphone and then putting it with a, with a text. And so from that experience, we knew this time around, we wanted to do 
something like that, but maybe a little bit nicer than me reading it in my closet, like the day of publication. And so we convinced the editors to, that we should hire a professional Spanish language audio podcast maker to make just a red version of, of the story. And so we were really thoughtful about that. We wanted somebody with a kind who spoke a kind of Spanish that would be easy to understand by the people who we were writing about. And somebody who had like the technical capacity to produce it, et cetera, and who could also help back read our, our Spanish and make sure that it was it was good enough. And so we ProPublica like put money, put money into it. And we hired this like amazing podcast couple make these this 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 crew out of Chile. I was a little bit nervous because Chile is like to me have a thick accent, but hers is a little bit neutralized. And she has this beautiful podcast. It's called Las Raras. That's similar to This American Life in a way. It's got that sort of that sort of vibe. And and she she was down and she did an amazing job with 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 the producer that she works with. And then so we had this beautiful audio version that we included. But we also knew that a lot of people have like internet limitations and that there's something special about having something in your hands, like a tactile thing. And I, and that experience in Nicaragua and, you know, being the kid of immigrants, I've gone to visit my family in Mexico and in Salvador, people don't have a lot of books. They're expensive. It's difficult to access literature. Um, and I wanted to make a little book version of it. And I thought like, it's, it's, I, I rarely think that the things I do are like good enough to, to make into a beautiful like work of art. But this felt, this felt different. It was a different kind of story. And we were able to convince the editors to produce, to, to design and produce little booklets with the story. And we haven't printed a ton yet, maybe four or 500. But what we're doing is, in addition to sending these to the people involved, like the, the father, the father of this boy, you know, he's got a bunch of the booklets, but he can't read very well. He's got a first grade education. He's listened to the audio version a couple of times as, he's wor as he works and like listening to the story has helped him understand how his son died and how the authorities got it wrong. But as, as you know, this, the, the, the point isn't just to get the story out to people, like that's a good enough goal, but our other goal is to get more people to talk to us for more stories. And so just this week we were in Wisconsin driving around, going to little grocery stores and restaurants and talking to people and handing out handing out our literature now, our little booklets and flyers we've made as we try to get more people to talk to us. So it's like a calling card of sorts. So, yeah, I mean, that that has so many different potential uses, and it is certainly great for distributing the story to the people that need to read it. So I've noticed a pattern, and I believe this is common with ProPublica. A story runs, and then within days or weeks, another story runs, and this time it has prominent government response. So what sort of response did you get to your reporting on this one? It's It's been mixed. We reached out to a lot of the county commissioners in, in Dane County where the law enforcement just got this, this story so royally wrong. And for the most part, people, it's like a really, you know, Dane County is like where Madison is, a really progressive place. People were pretty horrified. They were shocked by like the living conditions. In this case, the boy lived in a barn, like above the milking parlor where, where the dad worked. So I think a lot of people were, were just really concerned. There hasn't been a ton of reporting in Wisconsin about this, this aspect of the industry. A lot of the reporting is kind of romanticizing the the death of the small farmer the small farm and that this this part ha isn't as clearly known so people were 
were upset and and but at the local level like not sure what they could do because what what is OSHA's responsibility what is the state's responsibility and the the one part that they found that they could do something about was with the sheriff's office and maybe improving language access in some way and and so I have under, I understand there's been a number of meetings about how to do this at the county level but there has been no no impact yet, no clear outcome that has changed. But at the state level, it's been similar. There, there's, a, there's a lot of interest in by some folks in, in making making changes to how housing employer provided housing is regulated, this issue around driver's licenses. There's no licenses for undocumented people, but so far nothing nothing has changed. But I've noticed that in other other stories, including ones that you've done, there there is impact. And I noticed too that your specialty seems to be reporting on broken systems, the dairy farm story being one example with multiple broken issues there. You've reported on issues related to unaccompanied children crossing the U.S.-Mexico border. They're being placed in temporary housing while they wait for the system to deal with them. You've reported on racial disparities for speeding tickets. Those are ones just that I found essentially on page one and two of your ProPublica listings. What are some of the things that you've learned or noticed about broken systems from the reporting that you've done? I guess that it's you can you can approach it from any direction. I used to think that I couldn't do this reporting as well as my colleagues because I didn't have an immediate like big picture understanding of all the broken parts. I would I look at things kind of from the bottom up. And it takes me a while to see the big picture. And I thought that I, you know, I just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't do the big, the big picture, the big systems, broken systems reporting. And I, I just learned that it doesn't really matter how you approach it. Like they all, all the, they all, they all help you see, they, 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 it all, it all leads to the same place. So I think in my case, I always start with like, you know, the, 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 the poor little guy at the bottom and I slowly work my way, way back. Like, how does, how does this ticket from, you know, from speeding, like connect to like where somebody lives or where the police, you know, operate or whatever the case is. And I, what's really helped me do that reporting is, is doing, not trying to tackle the big thing all at once because I get overwhelmed and stressed out and then I become kind of immobilized. But if, if I do a little bit at a time, like one little story, you know, this story wasn't quite little, but but the, the little story can help me do the next story with more authority and do the next one, do the next one. And suddenly you have like a body of work, like that ticketing stuff. It started in 2000, the reporting in 2017. And I've been, I think I did a story last year and it's, it's, uh, I have dozens of stories and dozens of stories eventually led to like laws changing in the state and like debt relief for people and changes to like how government like, does its job. So I think take things as in little bites that are easier to get out and, and publish, and then the next one will be a little bit better. So that, okay, so that's great. Those are examples of reporting that you did that was particularly impactful from a legal perspective. You mentioned stressed out. When you're doing pieces like these, I imagine that they, that they're kind of living in your head for months at a time. How do you handle that mentally? I mean, I go to therapy that helps a little bit. I, I talk things out a lot with people around me. Even my my five-year-old kid who looks a lot like the, the boy who died who we wrote about. Somehow, you know, sharing it with others. Like I, I don't, I'm not like secretly working on a project I don't want anybody to know about. It helps me to talk about it. But at the end of the day, like this stuff 
it's 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 traumatic more for the people who are writing about than for for us for me it's more like the stress of getting the thing done and having to be right and not making a mistake and um I don't know you do you do live with it I dream I dream of the work and I have lots of nightmares but there's like an end in sight and so I think that makes it easier whereas for the people who are writing about they're they're living it forever this guy is never gonna have his kid again and that's I just can't compare my my misery to his how do you um how does being a journalist and the work that you've done particularly more, more recently impact how you view the world as a whole I hope that it it lets me treat people and see people with more empathy. I don't know if that's always the case because you just never know what people have gone through. I mean, I see I see stories all around me. I you know I know I work at a place where I can't just do them all. I used to write daily stories and I would walk in the world and see a story like down the block and be able to write about it. So that's that's a little bit more difficult. I try to I try to give stories to people as I as I find them, but it's but it's hard. I don't know. I, I I think just doing journalism has really helped me like engage with the world more. Like I talk to people really openly, and it's I love it. And I'm trying to teach my kids how to do the same thing. Do your kids have your kids said they want to do what mom does? My my older kid wants to be like a ballet dancer or a singer. All right, <laughs> that's so a little I, different. I don't think so. I, okay. think he, I think he thinks it's cool. He tells everybody. My mom wrote about this little boy who died. So it's kind of gruesome. <laughs> so explain the significance. Uh, I know the name. I think most people that are listening hopefully know the name of the Stead's Turkle Award. It's a super special award that's given to Chicago journalists who write about the little guy, kind of like Stead's Turkle did. He wrote... He interviewed a lot of people who normally aren't, people don't care about like the waitress or the, you know, just, just like the, the blue collar worker. And when I moved to Chicago, I started reading Studs Turkle and I had a friend who was awarded one of these, a, a, an educational reporter. And I remember going to the ceremony and just thinking, gosh, like, like I, this, this is, this is the thing that I, I, I would love to be able to be known for one day. And and so, just just recently, a couple of weeks ago or last week, I was I was given one of these awards, and so I'm kind of in the ranks of the the Chicago journalists who are known for writing about the little people, and it's it's like a badge of honor. I, I'm not good at writing about the about power, about about corruption. I don't have like good political scoops. I I don't I I'm not good at the gotcha stuff. I'm kind of scared of it in politics, but I I like writing about the the little people like the people that I come from. That's I'm grateful to be paid to do it. Is there any other piece of advice that you could offer in any area journalistically in which you feel you have good advice to offer? I guess, I mean, for me, what's worked is to write about what I know about. And I know a lot of folks have reluctance to do that. Like you don't want to be pigeonholed as writing about Black people because you're Black or writing about Muslims because you're Muslim. And maybe I should have some of that reluctance, but I I don't. I feel like it's given me expertise and it might give give you like a point of view or a, you know, a, it, it's not what's normally done or the way things are normally covered. But I think that we have, we all have like a really unique voice and way of doing things that it's it's like, it's okay to be different. <laughs> it's okay to, to do things in this way. And, and if, 
if you've, I, I would just encourage people to not shy away from writing about the thing that they know intimately and not to think that they, they, they might be biased for doing it. Like we're, we're all biased. And I think that that would be it. No, that that's, that's ideal. Last question. The show's called the Journalism Salute. We salute you uh, beyond the Stud Circle Award and ask that you do likewise. Is there a journalist or journalism organization that you're not affiliated with that you would like to salute for their good work? Yeah, the the person who comes to mind is is a reporter named Aura Bogado, um, A-U-R-A-B-O-G-A-D-O. She's a reporter who writes about immigrant kids often trapped in the system for, for reveal. So she's she's just She's got this bravery about the way that she approaches the world that I respect. Melissa Sanchez, thank you for taking the time to join us. If we can ask, what are you working on next? More stories about dairies. <laughs> I mean, this whole year, that, that's what we're doing. We're, we're looking at a story now about this driver's license issue and, and undocumented people kind of being trapped on the farms where they live and work. And then more, more to come, more injuries and deaths to come. We look forward to reading it. Thank you. Best of luck with your work. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.